90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. It finally got cold here, so I've been enjoying lots of uh, pumpkin spice lattes. Actually, they're going away, so I'm kind of sad, but I'll find something to fill the void. Well, it's after that, it's the uh, the peppermint mocha and... I'm a big fan of the, all those... the gingerbread latte. That's, that's my Yeah, favorite. yeah, and all those, uh, those drinks. It's been pretty cold here, too. We've had a couple of snows now. Earlier this week, we had a nice probably four-inch snow or so. Ooh, that's not even fair to gloat about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's good because now I have a good excuse that I'm spending all this time hunkering down in my basement <laughs> workshop because <laughs> uh, it's too cold to do anything else <laughs> oh so true that's that's pretty good <laughs> oh yeah so i've been playing around i've been well making some parts for your magnetometer yes and, uh, yes all kinds of fun stuff yeah yep uh, i was glad to break your new machine in with our order yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we'll see if they actually work i'll let you know next week <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been up to uh that's it still still messing with this dumb magnetometer as you know um good wrapping up the school year kids have lots of uh, essays due so my classes are not fun places to be right now oh yeah and then yeah. all of the grading for getting grades in on time oh i don't even want to think about that there's going to be copious <laughs> copious amounts of beer ingested <laughs> during that during that week <laughs> Well, so we've been doing all kinds of uh, preparing for workshops and conferences and everything at work. And so I have been driving back and forth more than normal, which means I'm consuming audiobooks at a little bit faster rate ah. than normal. <laughs> and uh, so I've listened to a couple of good ones recently. One was called A Mind at Play, which was about Claude Shannon. And incidentally, our friends over at Embedded.fm interviewed the author oh, on last week's show. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, excellent, excellent episode. I highly recommend the book and going and listening uh, to that interview on Embedded. I'll link it in the show notes. The other book that I recently finished is a book called Atomic Awakening, okay. which was about the uh, the history of nuclear everything. It's how we learned about nuclear fission and the structure of the atom all the way up to I would say the early 2000s, probably. Wow, so this is way back. This isn't just like nuclear power or anything like that. No, it's everything. In fact, the book started further back than anything that I've ever heard of nuclear-related. In fact, something that I thought would fit in on the show very well, <laughs> because it started 1.7 billion years ago at the beginning of the book. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, so what are we talking about there? <laughs> so they were talking about a natural nuclear fission reactor. All right. Which we all kill for today, right? Yeah. I mean, it sounds crazy because mm -hmm. nuclear power plants, nuclear reactors are some of the most complicated machines that we've engineered they're complicated, they have to be carefully tended to, and sometimes there are large-scale accidents. 
So it seems really bizarre that something could happen naturally. Are we talking about something deep in the earth? I in the earth. I'm not going to say deep. Oh wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. So deep you're killing me. Imply... What is it? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> well, we're going to build the suspense some more by first talking about how <sighs> we found out about this. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is where history of science just makes me mad, but you know, go ahead. <laughs> This probably so in the beginning there was not... <laughs> some radioactive elements, I'm guessing. Right. Well, let's go back to May 1972 in France. You said 1.7 billion years ago. <laughs> well, this is going to be when we found out about these. Okay. Because right. it was it was an accident. Gotcha. Oh. So. Uh oh. <laughs> France has a very extensive nuclear power program. Mm-hmm. In fact, they get about forty percent of their power from nuclear energy. Okay. Yep. Knew that. Which in the U.S. we have about half that. So Sur- we're twenty percent or less. Surprised it's even that much, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and there's this whole interesting economic set of circumstances around the French nuclear power industry because they have limited natural resources. Uh, so they have a very active fuel creation and enrichment program. Uh, it's all part of this thing called the Mesmer plan, but that gets a little off of where we're going here. Okay. All right. Gotcha. It is interesting though, because as clean as nuclear is, you know, it's not used very much because of all these horrific things that could happen. So I'm sure that actually is quite interesting to read in terms of public policy. Oh, well, I would definitely recommend this book. It uh, it talks about the waste produced by nuclear energy, the actual hazards versus perceived hazards. Oh, okay. Uh, it's very interesting. And one quick bit that's I got from the book that I found fascinating was, so if, if you power your electricity needs for your life from a coal-fired power plant, you have a small mountain of fly ash and waste products left over, mm-hmm. plus various radioactive isotopes that were in the coal that were released <laughs> into the atmosphere during its burning. Right, yep. Uh, if you were to power your entire life's electricity needs from a nuclear power plant, it would produce approximately a soda can-sized amount of nuclear <gasps> waste. <laughs> I mean, that's some pretty potent waste, but still. <laughs> right, but... Yeah. We digress. Yes. So, <laughs> as always, <laughs> 1972. You're at this uranium enrichment plant in France, and they are doing a pretty much run of the mill check on isotopes that are coming from this uh, ore that comes from a mine in Oklo. Okay. They keep a very tight control on their fuel because you need to know if somebody's skimming some U-235 off the top to make a weapon. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So this load of isotope, or this load of ore comes in, they check it, and immediately panic. Because, because the, uh, the concentration of uranium-235, which is the fissionable isotope of uranium, mm-hmm. uh, was 0.6% in the ore. And... Everything that came from that mine was about 0.72 normally. Oh, that's significant. A tenth of a percent. It's huge. (laughs) Yes, that's really big. And that'd be weird for (laughs) ore to change like that, right? That's what they thought. Mm -hmm. They said, well, this has to have gone somewhere. 
Right. And so Im- immediately there is this security nightmare of what's happening and yeah. an investigation is started by the French Atomic Agency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm guessing they didn't find a runaway nuke or else we would know about it or we wouldn't be here. Right. <laughs> so they, they started doing more sampling of the mine, trying to figure out if this was isolated what was going on? They ended up finding samples that, even more to their alarm, were 0.44%. <laughs> so now they know it's a natural phenomenon, right? But that's... A I would big... say, here's, that, that's the catch, is they go and you know chip this out of the mine and take it to the lab. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's two-tenths of a percent low. Right. That's, that's a big swing just in one ore body. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, what do you think the next step would be? Well, they're going to look at what that decays into and check that out, right? Yeah. So, nuclear fission produces a set of decay products. Mm -hmm. So, you have uranium that'll go through a series of daughter products until eventually you get to lead. Right. But that takes a long time. Yes. So, they started looking at different isotopes in the ore, and they found a lot less of neodymium-142 than there should be, and a lot more of neodymium-143 than there should be. Okay. And they also found incredible amounts of rubidium-99. So this is really weird, because that's not what you would expect, just chemically. Well, so these are signatures of decay. Right. Right, but in those quantities, right? That's what's weird. Yeah, you wouldn't expect it straight out of ore out of the ground. Right, because if uh, you're looking at decay, that's a fairly easy calculation to make. So you should know what your products are. Yeah, and so they're they're saying, well, this has to have been fissioned, not only just generally fissioned, but it has to have been fissioned by thermal neutrons. Okay, so somebody made a little nuclear reactor within the mine. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> That is what all of the evidence pointed to, is that this material had at one time in its life run in an active nuclear reactor, but it's in solid rock. (laughs) This is cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so this was puzzling. I'm sure the ancient aliens guy was going nuts. Exactly. If he had been paying attention at this point. Uh, Oh, exactly. I mean, this is obvious proof of it. So I don't know why we're going to even keep talking. (laughs) Right. And so by looking at the quantities of these decay products, they were able to estimate when this was in a nuclear reactor. Okay. And that is when somebody did the calculation and came up with 1.7 billion years from criticality. <laughs> clearly aliens, clearly. And you know when they did that, they checked it, and then they checked it, <laughs> yeah. and then they got somebody from the office next door, and they're like, no, that can't be right. You have to, no, no, you missed a unit conversion in here somewhere. Exactly, exactly. And Why are there five, six, seven extra zeros? <laughs> Exactly. Uh, This is really weird. Yeah. I mean, 1.7 billion years is a long time. Even geologically, that's getting... Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We usually scoff at those long times, but no, that one's for real. Mm -hmm. 
So here's what it came down to. There was a high concentration of uranium in this area. I mean, it's, it's a uranium mine now. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, but a very high concentration in certain veins and water infiltrated. Okay. Water was infiltrating now or a long time Water's ago? infiltrating in the past. Okay, all right. And that's not uncommon, right, in geologic no. formations. You get water depositing things in veins all the time. All the time. Water has a really special property in that it's a neutron moderator. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So what's it, what's it doing? So water slows down neutrons. Mm-hmm. So when neutrons come out of a uranium decay, they are going very fast. Like right. <laughs> fractions of speed of light fast. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Which is why we and, want them for energy. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. If you just have a pile of uranium, mm-hmm. it's pretty hard to get that to go super critical. You've got to... Because the neutrons are going so fast. And remember, everything in atomic science is probabilistic. Ah, yeah, that is so true. Mm-hmm. The neutrons are going so fast that the probability of them colliding with another uranium nucleus and causing it to decay... Ah, uh, is low. Causing it to fission is very low, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, that makes uh, sense. I mean, in fact, to get the uranium fission bomb, uh, we did a couple things. One of them was putting enough of it together that we could get it super critical in a very highly enriched form much okay. more so than this mm-hmm. and the other one was we took some less enriched stuff surrounded it with high explosives and compressed it so much oh, that it went super critical so scary <laughs> yeah so uh neither of those happened here <laughs> <laughs> and so if you slow these neutrons down then you can get a self-sustaining chain reaction. Ah, because you, now you've got a more probability they're going to bang into each other. Right. And so in the early reactors, like Enrico Fermi's original Chicago Pile 1, mm-hmm. this was done with graphite blocks. Okay. And that's actually what the Chernobyl reactor used for a moderator as well, uh-huh. uh, as well as the wind scale reactor, both of which had accidents. We know it's a really not a good idea to mm-hmm. use graphite as a moderator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of reactors now use water. Okay. Just plain water. And so you've got water infiltrating into this formation. It slows down the neutrons enough that you're able to hit criticality. That is crazy. So you get a self-sustaining chain reaction. (laughs) A natural little nuclear reactor. Yeah. That's amazing. I surely this is the only place this has happened. I guess you got to have a only... lot of groundwater. You have to have a lot of groundwater. You have to have a high uranium concentration. It is the only place that we know of that this has happened. That is so cool, and I can't believe I hadn't heard of this before. I hadn't either. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't believe it. Um, so the really cool thing about this is they were able to construct a model that pretty much nails exactly down to within minutes of how this thing ran. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. How did they do So, it? 
Well, the catch is, if you put a bunch of water in and you get a nuclear reaction, mm-hmm. nuclear reactions produce heat. Yep. That's why we use them for power. It heats up water, turns it to steam, turns turbines. Yep. Okay. Um, here, you don't have giant feed water pumps forcing tens of thousands of gallons of water a minute across a core. Right, exactly. Groundwater moves slow, generally. Right. So <laughs> this thing would fire up, and within 30 minutes, it would reach a few hundred degrees Celsius and boil off all of its groundwater. Ah, then you got to recharge. Yeah, because when all the groundwater's gone, there's nothing moderating the neutrons, and the reaction stopped. God, this is so cool. And <laughs> so the reaction would stop, the rock would cool down, groundwater would re-infiltrate, and after two and a half hours, there would be enough groundwater, moderate the neutrons enough that the reactor would start up again. And the whole thing's just, so it's this three-hour three pulsed power reactor. That is so awesome. And it ran like that for a long time. <laughs> and so they could figure out how much, right? Because they've got all these daughter products hanging out. So, Yeah. And <laughs> any guesses at how much uranium-235 these series of small reactors burned? I mean, if you've got enough in an ore deposit, it's got to be quite a bit, right? But, I mean, there's still enough uranium left in the ore deposit. So it had to be big. And, you know, it's it was 0.7% to start with, right? Right, yeah. And you've knocked it down to 0.4 in so some places. So it burned five tons of U-235. <laughs> in this just several thousand year natural reactor. That is yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So what I want to know, oh, well, no, 1.7 billion years. I guess there's not going to be a, there's not going to be any cool animals that got fried by this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but the, the question then became, and the book didn't go into this as much, but I was curious, why 1.7 billion years ago? Well, this is going to have to do with the makeup of the atmosphere, right? I'm curious why you say that. Well, if you're going to have water, it took a while for water to get around. Okay, true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was around before this. So it was around before 1.7 billion years. So, so what else is different? That's, that's, that's why I say atmosphere. What else could be different? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot else changing right then. Right, uh, yeah, exactly. But we were getting a lot of oxygen. Mm. And, okay, okay, when we say nuclear reactors burning things, it's not actually burning. So, okay, why does oxygen matter? Right, yeah. Uranium is soluble in water in the presence of oxygen only. No kidding. Yes, you need oxygen to be part of that reaction. Ah. So what happened is there was diffuse uranium. Then 1.7 billion years ago-ish, we got enough oxygen in the atmosphere that the uranium began to dissolve into the groundwater, which concentrated it into veins, which let it become concentrated enough for this to happen. To actually happen. Man, that's so awesome. (laughs) What an awesome geological study. Yeah. <laughs> like, kudos to the geologist that figured this out. Please say it was a geologist. It had to be, right? 
I, I would assume that it was a combination of geologists, nuclear engineers, and just really confused folks. Yeah, uh, yeah man, <laughs> that is so true. How weird. That is so cool. Hmm. So I just thought this story was cool because, you know, we think we're so clever with our technology. <laughs> no. Nature did it first. Yeah, 1.7 billion years ago, nature figured out a fission reactor. Oh, see, I love this. This is such a great, that's so true, because, you know, all the time, these really interesting engineering problems get solved by looking at the natural world and seeing how nature engineers things, right? Mm-hmm. So this is beautiful. You're like, oh, look at us, opposable thumbs and nuclear reactors. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, so the... Uh... The other thing that was really cool about this is th there's a well-known phenomenon, uh, xenon. In fact, five isotopes of xenon are in the decay chain of uranium. Okay. God, what isn't in the decay chain? Not much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, things with low atomic numbers, that's about it. Yep. Uh, and so xenon actually has caused a lot of problems in reactors in the past because of a phenomenon called xenon poisoning. Right, yeah, because that's not something you want concentrated. Right. If you have uh, some of these larger, in fact, I believe one of the wind scale units experienced this. Um, when they started the reactor, they had not adequately ventilated it. Mm -hmm. And when xenon gas builds up, it's a neutron absorber. <laughs> and the reactor actually just shut itself down. Yeah. Because gotcha. this gas built up. So there would be xenon gas generated when this reactor was running. Mm -hmm. They found it. They found all <gasps> five isotopes. No kidding. And Still, 1.7 billion years later, it was still there. Well, this is a super tight formation because guess how far it had moved? <laughs> uh, centimeters. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what is the... Do they talk about what is the host rock? I mean, I guess you're not going to have a lot of porosity in, in a igneous rock, so. No, I didn't look into the detail of what the host rock was too much. Uh, and also, this stuff was getting heated really hot, so that's going to further reduce the porosity. Yeah, that is true. Um, I mean, but you've yeah, got the groundwater was... going. Th well, I guess the groundwater's in veins, so. Right. And so the, these fission products migrated, yeah, a few centimeters from these veins that were anywhere from a few centimeters to a meter wide. That is super awesome. Yeah. I mean, that is really neat. So uh, my cursory, oh, actually, uh, the uranium ore bodies are in sandstone. Hmm. So they must at, have really reduced the porosity. Yeah, there. at that Oklahoma mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's the there's granitic bedrock, um, and some faults in that granite, which probably led to a lot of this deposit. But yeah, it's in the, it's actually in sandstone. So hmm. there you go. Hmm. I guess xenon can't travel like water can. Right. Hmm. And, and this this whole story, I would love to have talk to some of the people that were involved in the process because the whole thing just had to seem crazy and surreal the whole time until they finally figured it out. Yeah, no no kidding. No kidding. And that aha moment had to be insanely satisfying. <laughs> well, either that or somebody said, what if this was a natural nuclear reactor? And everybody said, go home. Yeah. 
<laughs> when did that happen? Like two billion years ago? Idiot. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. I hope somebody puts some money on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's another, mm, I, I guess you would call it a hypothesis. It's something that somebody has proposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a wee bit crazy. Aren't most of these things when you first happen? It's true. Uh, so there is a hypothesis that 4.5 billion years ago, a natural nuclear reactor that was existing at the core mantle, or the, sorry, the uh, the crust mantle boundary, ah, mm-hmm. went hypercritical, exploded, threw off large amounts of geomaterial, and that's where the moon came from. That is really interesting. I like it. it. It's... It, it's a fascinating idea with absolutely no backing. <laughs> no, no, it sure, sure isn't. I mean, there's a lot of, if it was that high at the crust mantle boundary, you would have had to blow off a lot of mantle to equal the composition of the moon now. Oh, sorry. No, it's core mantle boundary. Oh, okay. The core mantle. I, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I just makes... double checked their paper. Core mantle oh. boundary. Nope. That makes more sense. <laughs> so it's, but still the, Getting the right concentrations of uranium there, getting enough of it to make an explosion that big. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Be- because we've got a pretty good handle on Earth composition now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how many kilometers is that down, the core mantle boundary? That's 4,000? Yeah. 3,000? Yeah, I don't... You would... I don't even know if a fission reaction could do that yeah. with reasonable amounts of uranium. That's a lot of rock on top of that. I mean, granted, yeah. it was plastic molten rock yeah three thousand kilometers down huh and the earth was spinning faster then so you would have some advantage there but yeah that eh. is is true that's true but Hmm. so i mean of course the giant impact hypothesis is the one that we mostly believe to be true but this was an idea that was thrown out there uh that seems crazy but like you said all this does initially oh right yeah exactly so uh, that's pretty neat i like it i like it a lot I mean, I remember that our most well-attended colloquium was when this crazy guy came to say that there's not an iron core in the middle of the Earth. It's actually a reactor. Like, just a big nuclear reactor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were people, like, standing outside to refute him. It was amazing. And I say heat flux calculations don't really jive with that story. No, there's lots of things that don't jive with that. But it is an interesting idea. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I, I, I couldn't believe that over the course of geology classes and I took a couple of nuclear engineering classes that I never heard this story. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is outrageous. I, I guess I could bring it up in intro geology. It seems like something that you could throw into a groundwater lecture. Oh yeah. Uh, just because it's a great example of geological problem solving. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, it's so cool because everybody does make such a big deal. Oh, you know, I looked to the ants to figure out this engineering problem, or I, you know, looked at how termites build their mounds, and I figured out that engineering problem. And it's like, yep, not even nuclear engineers, something that you would think is an eminently human thing. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, and I think there are probably some good lessons to learn from this about waste storage. Uh, well, uh, yes, that is probably very true. (laughs) 
False because, bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because nuclear waste storage is something that we've had issues with in the U.S. Nobody wants it. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But no there are some all. great geological repositories. Yes. That and we some, think would be very safe. Some very poor ones, too. <laughs> uh, there are, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so you've got to think about this, which you may never have thought about when you're yeah. stashing and, all your used uranium. Well, and there's all of this, uh, you know, this formation didn't let these decay products move more than centimeters over 1.7 billion years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's exactly. a pretty good container. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you would never think to put put that in a sandstone. So, hmm. yeah, very interesting. I mean, even our fun paper really is going to talk about nature engineering again because she's the best. It's true. In fact, I think that we should probably move on to that, which is everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) Now, this is a weird one. I will say that I do appreciate these nature letter papers because they're as short or as long as you want them to be. (laughs) It's true. And there's also often some write-ups in, like, on the nature blog. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. that talk about them as well and help non-experts understand. Yes, because this one is very technical. But what we're talking about is the octopus genome and the evolution of cephalopod neural and morphological novelties by Alberton et al. This is a long list of authors, actually. It's true. And the the subtitle to this paper would be The Octopus is Awesome. And really weird, evolutionarily speaking, too. Yeah. So this paper looked at a bunch of things about the genome, which non-experts, some of these charts are just pretty colors. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask how many of them that you even could figure out. So they're gorgeous. <laughs> I will say that. They're very good examples of data visualization. There's linear color scales all over the place. I know. I was just going to say the color scales are pretty magnificent. Uh, and I can sort of see what some of them are trying to show with like Z-scores. But as far as like the column labels on these, you know, gene PF02037SAP means nothing to me. <laughs> I'm sure it means something to somebody somewhere. Yes. So basically, I mean, lots of people look at octopi because they're really weird, right? And so I think what they're trying to do is look at how they evolved all these weird things that they do, right? Because unlike a lot of other related animals, you know, they've got these chromatophores that do all this weird stuff and keep them hidden and, you know, this binocular vision, and there's some weird stuff about their suckers that came out in this paper, too. Yeah, and, I mean, if you look at their the class structure, these things are mostly related to clams. Right, uh, not, not squids like you would expect, right? Right, and they're certainly not a clam. No, uh, uh, if clams look like that, I, that, that'd be terrifying. And, in fact... They say that the octopus has roughly the same intelligence as a dog. Yes, and there are all kinds of cool uh, studies about what an octopus can do, but now they have this at a genomic level where its intelligence lives in its genome. Right, and in fact, they said 
uh, I like that they admitted in here. They said, we just use a shotgun approach. We sequenced the whole genome because <laughs> we didn't know what to look at exactly. Uh, so we sequenced the whole thing. And the octopus has a huge genome. Yeah. And I don't even see how in science we've done this. But it can tell, we can tell, where certain genes have come from. Like what families way back when right and so to give you an idea of the massive scale of this study uh the human being has about twenty-five thousand protein coding genes mm -hmm. the octopus has thirty-three thousand. <laughs> it's so tiny comparatively <laughs> it's true and well, what these do is help it do all kinds of weird things, like be able to taste with its suckers. Yeah. So instead of the suckers just being suckers, yeah, they, after looking at this, they think it's a sensory organ as well. Right. And it can do things like help build new proteins and change functions of things. Uh, and in fact, uh, this is something that was not uniquely discovered by this paper, but something that I didn't really realize was that the the octopus brain has so many neural connections it actually spills out of the head into the arms some yeah and that's... the arms have enough independent computing power that even when dismembered not only do they just you know flail around like a chicken with its head cut off but they actually can perform a cognitive task when dismembered that's the creepiest thing i've ever heard <laughs> So being able to remember, oh, yeah, we know how to, you know, do this thing. We did this once before. Oh. We don't need the rest of the body to do that. That's crazy. And this is really cool because not only for neurobiologists, but for roboticists that are working with soft, flexible robots, this is a great model of distributed intelligence in a machine. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. That's a yeah. good call. Um, in terms of the genetics, it was really weird because they're just talking about how things evolve in general, like on a DNA scale. And this was sort of a really thick part that I don't know all the things. But what I thought was cool was that, you know, there are mechanisms for which we think things evolve. Um, and there's a bunch of different mechanisms. And they actually showed that the octopus evolved from squids a long time ago and other things by a bunch of different mechanisms, not just one. Right. And so apparently what happens is you can get multiple copies of sets of genes when you're evolving from some organism. Right. And the octopus has so many genes that they thought that this was going to be the case. Mm -hmm. In fact, yep. it wasn't. They're unique. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it did not get copies of these. It has just a lot of genetic information in it so there's a, a couple areas where they saw this enhanced genome uh, one was in called the zinc finger transcription factors mm -hmm. yeah okay <laughs> and so that has to do with all the the suckers and uh, all these different receptors and so on mm -hmm. and the other was in the protocadherin set which apparently has something to do with working on interaction of nerves. And it's how the 
the neural net effectively of the octopus is able to work without these long range neural cables like our spinal cord. Mm, mm, okay. Yep. And uh, they say that that's a key structure in its ability to learn and remember stuff. Yeah, and there's a video on the Nature website of a very small, adorable octopus that <laughs> they have some crabs for food that are in screw-top bottles. Mm-hmm. And it has learned how to undo the screw-top bottles, and so now it just sees them, goes over, wraps around it, uses another tentacle, unscrews the top, and eats the crab. <laughs> and the tentacle can do that by itself. Not eat it, but at least unscrew it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the when we were at uh, the aquarium, recently in Monterey Bay, there are toys because the octopus need to be entertained. They get bored. Uh-huh. Yep. I've heard that. I've heard it. They talk about octopus, octopi getting depressed if they don't have stuff. Right. Much like, you know, your dog would. Yeah. I and mean, so- if our dog did anything more than sleep, uh, she would play with <laughs> toys. But... <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we finally got our dog a new bone the other day, and they just chase each other around. It's the greatest thing ever. No one ever eats the bone. They just hide it from each other for weeks. It's the best game. <laughs> <laughs> um, but another thing that I thought was cool is being able to, it, you know, I remember in paleontology, those cladograms. You remember those awful, I don't know if you had to take paleontology. You did, didn't you? I, I did not. I'm geophysicist, oh, man. You lucky. <laughs> cladograms so you know where does stuff branch off evolutionarily and all this stuff um and they can look at dna and figure this out and i thought that was kind of cool um because they say using a relaxed molecular clock they estimated that the octopus and squid lineages just diverged 270 million years ago yeah that's a lot (laughs) that is (laughs) i mean for things that look i mean i guess if you just looked at them they're gonna look fairly similar but to have such a different genome and to have it that far apart it's pretty neat yeah i mean you know that the uh the end of the the write-up of this uh they said well you know we had these very simple mollusks like clams that sit in the mud and filter food and then there's the octopus uh (laughs) which (laughs) has it left its shell behind and has these very elaborate behaviors yeah uh, and it's very intelligent and finally, after sequencing the whole genome, we're starting to understand why. Yeah. I really want chromatophore-laden skin. I think that'd be awesome. That's true, being able to self-camouflage. Right, uh, yeah. Maybe after reading this, I can enhance my genes to do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's just, it's a really interesting paper to read as long as you don't get too frustrated by the specifics uh, <laughs> of the genetics and then going and looking at the write-up on the Nature blog as well. Yep, exactly. Or just go and admire the graphs. They're very pretty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have an idea for a fun paper or have a particular genome sequence that you would like us to talk about, we would love to hear from you. <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Yep, send us your DNA electrophoresis show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can also tag us on Twitter of your electrophoresis pictures <laughs> at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we are in our Slack chat room, the Software Underground, and we are the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic.
It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.